Good morning. It is a real privilege and a delight to be with you today. We have partnered with this church for almost 24 years. And we're so delighted to be among you and to be welcomed by you. Thank you for this opportunity this morning. Recently, some Canadian friends of ours came to visit us in our home in the Middle East. And as guests sometimes do, they brought each of us a gift. They brought one for me, one for my husband, Ken, one for our son, Jonathan, another one for Jeremy, and another one for Joey. Now, this gift was unusual because it wasn't chocolate chips or maple syrup or brown sugar. Those are the things we love and miss. This was unusual. They said to us, today we've brought you something to help you see things more clearly. And to remind you of us, they said, we want you to keep a certain perspective on your life and ministry here in the Middle East. And so with that curious introduction, they reached into the bag and pulled out these. One for each of us. Really? Well, it's true that Ken and I, our eyesight is failing, and he who always wore glasses now takes them off to read things. And I, who never wore glasses, now put them on to see anything. But really? Well, these glasses made great sense because our visitors were our mentors as well. And they came to speak to us about our vision and how we are carrying out our vision in the country that we live in. And so we spent many long hours with them talking about perspective, talking about vision, taking a lot of crazy pictures like this one of us posing in our glasses. Because 22 years ago when we left to move to the Middle East, the Lord gave us a vision. And our vision is still the same today. We see a vital movement of the gospel. And we want to see not just physical generations, but spiritual generations of people who come to know Jesus and share their faith with those around them so that the gospel message is next door to everywhere. Next door to everywhere. And this is not just something that we have thought up. It is actually God's vision it's what God has planted on our hearts because it is his vision that the nations know him. Now imagine with me, if you will, that one of your friends saw God. I know it's far out, but really imagine somebody actually saw the living creator of the heavens and the earth. And they lived and they wrote about it. And you could talk to them. You could read what they read, what they wrote. Wouldn't you just burn inside to know what was it like? Who was he? How did it feel? Wouldn't you want to know that? Well, that is what I would like to talk about this morning. I'd like to talk about two men who actually encountered the awesome presence of God, and they lived to tell about it. They lived to write about it. And we get to read what they said. And it's the life of Moses and the life of Isaiah. And what is totally awe-inspiring is that their encounters revealed the holiness and the hugeness of God. And yet they were incredibly intimate. And what is even more awe-inspiring is that it is God's vision that the nations, you and I, have this kind of encounter with him as well. 
Before we go to those stories, though, I'd like to share a story with you that shows that it's God's vision, not just for people like Moses and Isaiah, but for ordinary housewives. I'd like to tell you a story of one of my friends and how God is moving in her life to show him who he is. It is his vision for her to know him. My story begins on Tuesday morning. It was actually March 26th, to be exact. I know because I journal. And so I got up that morning early, and I took out my iPad and my notebook, and I wanted to have a quiet time with God. My reading started in Deuteronomy 17. And I uh, started to note down some of the things. It talked about the king and how much he must write out the word of God and he must repeat it every day. Wow, I thought that's really cool. But then I got to verse uh, 13 of chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. And I was amazed. And I was amazed because I live in the Middle East among a people who are 99.9% Muslim. And not Orthodox Islam so much as folk Islam. So when they come up against a crisis, they turn to mediums and horoscopes and diviners and soothsayers. So when I read this verse in Deuteronomy 18, my ears perked up. I thought, hey, here's a place where I can go to with my friends. They really respect Moses. I can turn to this passage and say, these nations, God says, listen to soothsayers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. So my ears were alert. I wrote that verse down. I prayed. I stopped and prayed. Lord, give me an opportunity to share this verse with one of my friends. But then I read verse 15, and I was blown away. I had saw a connection that I had never seen before in this verse. Verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from the midst of your brethren like me, Moses. You must listen to him. There it was. Not only did this passage tell my friends who not to listen to, but it also clearly says who you are to listen to. I've often read this great verse in Deuteronomy 18:15, and I've loved the way that way back in the Old Testament, God is talking about Jesus because Peter says in Acts 3 that the prophet referred to in this verse is Jesus. But I had never made the connection before that it was talking about who not to listen to and who to listen to. I thought, this is great. I went that morning to meet with one of the women I pray with. I pray with three women every week. I do this because I really want to know God, and I really want to be faithful in prayer. But like the hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I know that if I'm praying with other women, I'm more likely to follow through on my desires. So um, one of the women I pray with is Cheryl Gunaratnam. You know her from here. But this morning I was meeting with our Korean teammate, and I shared with her what I read in Deuteronomy, and together we prayed, God, please give Claire an opportunity this week to share this with one of her friends. The next day was Wednesday, and I was excited because I had a lunch date with three of my Muslim friends, and I imagined myself turning to this passage and telling them about it. But this conversation centered around other things, and I was not able to bring it up. I left that time feeling a little bit disappointed, and as I drove home, the weather went crazy stormy really cold day I thought I'm gonna go and pick up Joey from school so I drove over to the parking lot pulled in and I noticed right away my friend Sahar was sitting in her car and she had her head down she didn't notice me 
I drove right up beside her, opened my window, tapped on her window. She was so engrossed in a book that she didn't even hear me. I tapped again. She startled, and I saw that she was reading the Bible I had given her a month earlier. So I felt inspired. I said, Seher, can I come over to your house tomorrow, and we can talk about what you're reading? She said, sure. So the next morning, I found myself in Seher's living room. And she began to tell me, Claire, yesterday I was reading about Jesus casting out evil spirits when you pulled up. And last night I had another dream. Now you may know that many Muslims around the world, in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, all over the world, God is moving Muslims to himself through dreams and visions. We have yet to see a movement of the gospel like that in the country where we live. But of the small group that have come to faith in Christ, every one of them has had a dream or a vision of Jesus along the way. This is God's vision. This is what he's doing. So I wasn't surprised. Seher's first dream happened the, the night I gave her her first Bible, and that was, picture was taken that day. I wish I had time to tell you about her first dream because it really opened her eyes to listen to God's voice. But here I sat hearing the second dream, and she began hesitantly. She said, I'm not sure if I should tell you about this dream. It's kind of dark. I don't know if I want to tell anybody. But yesterday I dreamt that I was in a dark room filled with evil spirits. They were all around me. There was a door, and I knew that I had to get out to the other side of the door. There was something there that could help me. So I went to the door to try and get out, and it was locked. And she said, fear gripped me. You know how you get that rush of fear? My hands went sweaty, and I tried to open the door, and I couldn't. And there were evil spirits all around. I was so afraid, I started to scream. I started to pray, God, help me out of this room. Help me, help me. And she said that with her bare hands, she clawed that door down out of sheer fear. And when she got to the other side, there was an empty room except for a chair in the middle with a woman veiled sitting in the chair. She said, I couldn't tell whether she was young or old. I couldn't tell if I was safe or not. But just as the woman drew a breath to speak, I noticed that the evil spirits from the other room had followed me, and they were all around. And instinctively, I reached up and put my hand over her mouth to stop her from speaking. And at that instant, a light flooded the room like I've never seen before. It was the brightest light ever, whiter than white. And I was blinded, and the evil spirits that were in the room fled. And I yelled, it's the light of God. It's the light of God. Then I woke up, and she said when she woke up, her voice, her throat literally hurt from screaming. She looked, and her husband was asleep beside her. She couldn't believe it. How could he sleep? Didn't he hear me screaming? Everything seemed so real to her. She lay there shaking, and she asked me, Claire, what do you think my dream means? Well, I'm no interpreter of dreams. I come from a culture where we don't give dreams much importance, not like the culture that she lives in. But this time was different because I knew God had given me the interpretation just two days earlier. I asked Seher, who do you think the woman was in your dream? She didn't know, but she mentioned that she'd been reading a book by a, a lady author, and this author was someone who claimed to have supernatural powers to lay hands on people and heal them. 
She said, I felt really creepy reading that book, and I put it down. I think the woman in the chair could have been her. I said to her, well, what do you think it meant that the room was filled with evil spirits where this woman was? She paused, and she said, she gets her power from evil spirits. I shouldn't listen to that. And I said, what did you do when you put your hand up against her mouth? You instinctively knew that you should not listen. Let me show you what God just showed me in Deuteronomy 18. I had my journal with me. I pulled it out and I showed her what I had written and how that she had said the light of God made the evil spirits flee. I said, who's the light of God? John 8:12 tells us, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The light of God made those evil spirits flee. And who should you listen to? It was the most amazing rich time with Seher. She moved forward on that day closer to Jesus than I could have shared with her for hours and hours and hours and years and not gotten to that point. God is at work drawing people like her, ordinary housewives, to him. It is his vision that people like her come to know him. I'm absolutely amazed at the glimpse that we're given into the heart of God in Deuteronomy 18. It was Moses' custom, as you know, to get alone with God. When he came to the end of his life, he was described as the greatest prophet in Israel, and he was described as one whom the Lord spoke with face to face. But in Verse 9 of Exodus 19, God says to Moses, I'm not just wanting to speak to you. I want your people, the Israelites, I want them to hear my voice. So they have these elaborate preparations, and the Israelites come together at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Do you remember that scene in Exodus 19 and 20? It's a terrifying place and a situation that they find themselves in. And they beg God never to speak to them like that again. I don't blame them. We read later on in chapter 20 that when the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn and when they saw flashes of lightning and smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance and they trembled with fear. Can you imagine those strong slaves that came out of Egypt? Those men would have been powerfully strong and buff. (laughs) Can you imagine these guys all trembling? And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. We sometimes forget this side of God, don't we? We brush past the reality that if you and I were to stand before almighty God, we could die. Even the great men in the Bible who saw a glimpse of God had this same reaction. Do you remember John in Revelation 1.17? When he saw Jesus, what did he do? He fell on his face as if he was dead. One of my favorite places in the Bible to read about someone who had an encounter with God is in Isaiah 6. And we mentioned it earlier in this sermon, in the service this morning. Isaiah 6, 1 through 4 is an unbelievable, mind-blowing experience. Isaiah sees the Lord. And so we get to read about it here. It's an unbelievable, mind-blowing thing. Isaiah, a righteous man by the standards of the law, has a vision of God. It wasn't on Isaiah's agenda that day to see God. God made the initiative relationally with Isaiah. It was God's vision for Isaiah to know him. So God brings him into this temple. And chances are Isaiah was on his face 
before God like John was. It's a most amazing thing that he was in a place where the train of God filled the temple. The robe of God is filling the temple. So where's the throne of God? Perhaps it's above the temple. He's so high and lifted up. The robe was filling the temple, majestic, like the most amazing cloth Isaiah's probably ever felt. And he's wrapped in it. He's in the temple. And there were at least two angels standing above God. And they had six wings. But they only flew with two of them. With the other four wings, they covered their face and their feet. The presence of God was so overpowering that this covering was necessary for angels. And the seraphim flew around the throne of God singing. And their voices were so deafening as they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the sheer volume of their praises reached a decibel level that caused the foundations of the temple to shake like an earthquake. And the place is filling with smoke. So what's Isaiah's reaction? He cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. If I was going to put Isaiah's reaction into contemporary language, I might say, I am ruined. I'm undone. I'm toast. I'm never getting out of here alive. The word ruined also translates undone, and our word disintegrate comes from the same root. And it was the same for the people in Exodus 20. They knew that if God continued to speak to them like he was on that mountain that day, they could disintegrate. And God says about those, uh, what they said to him, he said, what they have said is right. You're right. You could disintegrate. You're right. I love the way the message of the gospel is right here in Deuteronomy 18. The people ask God not to speak to him that way. So what does he do? He raises up a prophet from among you who is like you, and you can hear him. And I'll put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to you. Do you see the heart of God so much wanting a relationship with us, so much that he initiates and does it through Jesus? And Jesus shouts to us in uh, John 12 where he says, I am not saying what I want to. I'm saying what the, God, what the Father commands me to say. I'm speaking his words. And so he is the prophet we are to listen to. When Isaiah thought he was undone when he's in this temple, he thought he was going to disintegrate, what, did, what happened? Well, the seraphim flew to him with a burning coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the altar, the center of the fire. Can you imagine how hot that is? With tongs. And he comes over, he's flying over to Isaiah, and Isaiah must have thought, here he goes, I'm just about to be vaporized. But the angel touches his lips, and his sin is taken away. His sin is dealt with powerfully and thoroughly, and he doesn't die. He's allowed to stay in the presence of God Almighty and live because his sin is dealt with. And Isaiah's sin was dealt with that way, just the way Jesus dealt with our sin. It's now completely possible for you and I to enter the presence of God the way Isaiah did and the way Moses did. We will not die. We will live because God raised up a prophet from among us 
Jesus and he put his words in his mouth and he died on the cross so that our sin could be dealt with. We don't have to approach a smoking mountain and stand at a distance. We don't have to stand outside of the Holy of Holies in the temple and let someone else go in for us once a year. We get to go right into the presence of God. The only thing stopping us is our own will. Do I want to enter God's presence? How much do I really want to know God? What is my response to all that he's done for me? It's his vision that I know him, but do I want to know him? Last fall, I organized a prayer retreat for our team in uh, the country where we live in. And we asked the national prayer director from the navigators in the States to come and lead us in a prayer retreat to pray that we would um, have faithfulness and perseverance in reaching out to our Muslim friends. It was an awesome weekend, but the biggest lesson came for me when the weekend was over. And we sat with these prayer directors, and I asked them to pray for us. I shared again our vision that we want to see people next door to everywhere. We want to see the gospel spread in this country. Could you pray for us? Well, I don't even remember what they prayed. Because as these two men came over and laid hands on Ken and I, I only remember hearing a small voice, a gentle voice within me saying, Claire, you want this vision more than you want me. You've made this vision into an idol. I was convicted to the quick, and I knew it was absolutely true. My whole intent for the prayer retreat was for us as a team to be more effective in praying for Muslim friends, not to know God in a deeper way. I was longing for what God had to give me rather than just who he is. Can you relate? Is there something that you long for that if you're honest with yourself, you want that thing or that person or that relationship more than you want just to know God? I was so challenged by our prayer leader when he said to me, Claire, I just want to know God. I could feel his passion. I could see it in his eyes. I heard his heart come through and I realized I wasn't there. Like David in Psalm 63 verse 1, he says, Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My soul faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I'm not there. But I long to be. I'm longing more to spend time with God, just enjoying him for who he is, just being in his presence, soaking in who I am to him. I am my beloved's, and he's mine. This is the kind of longing that Moses had for God. We already looked at this verse, Isaiah 33 today. In the Amplified Version, it reads, Moses is praying, Now therefore I pray you, if I found favor in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with you, perceiving and recognizing and understanding more strongly and clearly, and that I may find favor in your sight. When he got to the end of his life, Moses did not achieve his vision the way he envisioned it. But he knew God. And God knew him. And that is the greatest achievement of all. Now, you remember the story when Moses struck the rock at Meribah instead of speaking to it as God had instructed him to do? Do you remember what his punishment was for that? 
he didn't get to enter Canaan. What? He didn't get to go into the promised land that he'd been going and working towards and leading the people his whole life? Doesn't that seem a bit harsh? This brings up a painful possibility for me, the possibility that I too could work hard and serve God in the country where I live, straining towards our vision, and God could someday say to me, you can look, but you can't go in. You can long for it, but somebody else is going to take it across the finish line. For anyone who's dreamed dreams or seen visions, this is a possibility that's almost greater than you can bear. But if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, read it and reread it, you'll not find any evidence of an inner struggle with Moses. You won't find him arguing with God on the side of that mountain when he's overlooking the promised land and just getting to look at it but not go in. He's not arguing. And if you know Moses, you know that if he had something in him, he would likely tell God. That's the kind of relationship they had. But I don't think he did. Why? Because for Moses, the promised land was no longer a place. It wasn't a vision, a destiny. It was a person. The presence of God was the promised land for Moses. Knowing God and being known by him. This clearly meant more to Moses than anything else. What is my response to God's vision for him to know the nations? For him to know me? Do I want him more than anything else? There's a passage in the book of John that can radically affect our understanding of who God is and what our relationship with him should be like. It's the passage in John 13. And in verse 23 we read, The disciple Jesus loved was reclining next to Jesus. And in verse 25, he leaned back on Jesus' breast. We mustn't hurry past this scene or we'll miss a magnificent insight. John lays his head on the, on the heart of God. As John leans back on the breast of Jesus and listens to his heartbeat, he comes to know him in a way that surpasses cognitive knowledge. What a difference there is between knowing about someone and knowing them. Most Muslims know about Jesus. But John here experienced what it's like to be a soul in God's presence. Like Moses did. He experienced Jesus as the human face of the God who is love. And what does he do? He discovers in this who he is. And how does John refer to himself? He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Brennan Manning in his book Abba's Child says correctly, if I find Christ, I find myself. And if I find my true self, I find him. This is the goal. This is the purpose of our lives. Manning adds, John did not believe that Jesus was the most important thing. He believed he was the only thing. Do I live like that? I want to respond to God's heart towards me that is seen in Deuteronomy 18 where he initiates for us to know him. I want to respond by believing and living in Jesus like he's the, not just the most important thing, but the only thing. Well, we haven't finished the story of Isaiah. We left him just when he was cleansed of his sin, and he realized he didn't die, he lived. Now the most amazing thing happens in the sensory overload that Isaiah has been experiencing. God speaks. 
He says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? God spoke. So here's Isaiah in this cloth in the temple, and God's throne is above him. And he hears a voice, and he looks to the left, and he looks to the right, and he realizes there's no one else in the room. He's overhearing the Trinity speak. And he raises up his hand, and he says in response to the question, Whom shall I send? He says, Here am I. Send me. If you're going to put that in today's vocabulary, you might say something like, Sir, if you'll entrust me to take your message, I'd be glad to take it. And that's the way it is with us. First, we have the privilege of entering the presence of God. We're overwhelmed, perhaps, with his majesty, with his holiness. But our sin is dealt with powerfully and thoroughly. And then, like Isaiah, we have the privilege of hearing God speak. Now, you remember the story of Moses and the burning bush. It was the angel of the Lord that caused the commotion in that bush. So it was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And because this was clearly abnormal, Moses stops and he looks to aside at the bush. And there seems to be a cause-effect relationship here between Moses' willingness to pay attention to the bush and God's willingness to speak. Because it says in Exodus 3, verse 4, When the, law, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. When he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. God spoke to Moses because he stopped. He paused. He noticed. He turned aside. Well, in January of this year, Ken and I experienced our own form of burning bush, something that caused us to stop and notice that God's doing something unusual. In our business, um, we have two things that we've been working on, our business's mission. We began it in order for us to be able to stay in this closed access country we're in. And we focused on having it be a legitimate business. And we focused on outreach to the people that we're living with. Um, we want that vision for them to know Jesus, that spiritual generations. So evangelism. And it's been wonderful to see six believers in our company and to disciple them and have them share their faith, see them go from fearful and reluctant to talk about God to praying that God will help them to speak what he's shown them. So God is giving his vision to them, and they're catching it. It's been wonderful to see our business's mission develop and grow. But in January, we had a financial crisis that caused, our, um, caused Ken to be out many nights worrying and caused us to wonder about the future of the company. It caused us to completely stop and say, God, what do you want with this company? And it made us turn aside and listen. And as we did, instead of um, hearing what we thought we might hear, we heard a beautiful message from God where he was saying to us, yes, keep going. Keep working on it being a legitimate business. Keep working on the evangelism side of it. But I want you to have a third side of the triangle. I want to bring this company to a place where you can help the poor and the downtrodden. You can give back into the society. And he raised up two men to join us to help with this third side of the triangle. And this is something we would never have heard had we not stopped and taken aside the time to hear God speak to us. I'm so thankful for that burning bush in January and that our desperation made us stop and listen. All of us have burning bushes in our lives, places that alert us to the possibility that God is at work doing something we could never have predicted. This is important, 
And it's important that we have the capacity to stop in the middle of our own life and have the sense to turn aside, take off our shoes, and pay attention. We've seen that God wants us to know him. But do we really want to know him? Now we hear, we see that God wants to speak to us. But are we really listening? The only thing stopping me from hearing God's voice is, am I listening? What does God want to say to me through these things? Well, earlier this year, Jonathan, our son, experienced his own form of a burning bush through the a huge disappointment. Now, as you know, we live in the Middle East, and he's of age where we wanted to send him back to Canada for university. So we began to apply online, and it was complicated, and we didn't know what we were doing, fumbling our way through. And we missed uh, some fine print, which ended up resulting that Jonathan was rejected by his first choice of university. And this news was crushing to him, really hard for him. He'd worked really hard and done really well in school, and then to be rejected. So he tweeted, he's on Twitter, he tweeted to his friends, I basically don't have a life next year. And I saw this tweet, because I'm on Twitter only to follow my kids, and I tweeted back, Jeremiah 29:11. And the next morning, um, when, he got, when it was time for school, uh, Jonathan didn't get out of bed. And he's never done that before. I went into his room, and it was dark, and he was in there sleeping. And I'm like, Jonathan, it's time for school. You've got to get up. He said to me, what's the point? So I sat down on his bed, and I tried to encourage him. Jonathan, you need to read Jeremiah 29:11. You need to hear what God has to say to you in those verses. I left his room with a heavy heart praying for him. And a little while later, he stirred, and I heard him come out, and I drove him to school. On the way to school, I said to him, Jonathan, did you read Jeremiah 29:11? And he said, that's what got me out of bed. So I was encouraged that he was listening. He took the time to turn aside and hear God's voice. So I dropped him off at school. And after school, Jeremy came home first. And Jeremy said to me, Mom, did you see John's tweet? And I said, yeah, I saw it. And I responded, Jeremiah 29. No, he said, not that one, the one after that. I said, no, what happened? Well, what happened was that Jonathan went into school and sat down in an empty classroom for a study hall. And he noticed on the desk beside him a bunch of yellow papers. And he thought, what are those? He takes one of the papers, pulls it over, and he reads this on the paper. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29:11. He was amazed. Wow, that's really cool. He took it and he took another one. What does this one say? It said the same verse. And another one, and another one. There must have been 10, 15 yellow papers sitting on the desk. So he took this picture of them and he tweeted, it's screaming at me. Jeremiah 29, 11, faith, hope. Well, that night, a totally different young man walked in the door. None of his circumstances had changed. Jonathan chose to listen to God's word and to believe, and his heart was filled with hope. What would have happened if Jonathan had not taken aside, taken time to turn aside and listen? After Moses' burning bush experience, he got into the habit. When challenges came to Moses, the first thing he did was to ask God what to, what to do. He would listen. 
He got into the habit of listening to him. You read it all over Deuteronomy. Then the Lord told me. The Lord said to me. We crossed. The Lord told us. The Lord said. We didn't go here because God told us not to. This was such a habit for Moses. When God's instruction came, for example, you remember the story, the famous story, when they get to the Red Sea and the Egyptians are chasing them and they get to see the whites of their eyes and they're panicking. What does Moses do? He prays. He stops in this burning bush crisis. He listens to God's instruction. And do you think that Moses had the idea, well, I'm just going to raise my staff over this water and it's going to divide and we're going to walk across on dry land? Do you think that entered Moses' mind for one minute? No, but Moses oriented his life so that he would listen to what God had to say. And God gave him the totally unexpected, amazing, miraculous ideas and what to do and instructions. And he was able to do this because God, that's the kind of God he is. We read in Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do super abundantly far over and above all that we dare ask or think, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, hopes, or dreams. And in the message, that verse reads, God can do anything, you know, far more above what you imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. And the message translation finishes with how God does this. It says, he does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. His spirit deeply and gently within us. It's not pushed upon us. He does it gently and deeply. And this requires us to take time to turn aside and listen. Perhaps this requires rethinking my prayer life. Oswald Chambers summarizes his thoughts on prayer like this. He says, prayer is getting ourselves attuned to God, not God attuned to us. What does God want to say to me? Not do I, what do I have to say to him, but am I listening? And every time I get together with God in the morning and I open up his word, it is a form of listening prayer. It is God initiating with me. And when I'm journaling and writing down, I am listening to him. This is a key way for us to listen to what God has to say to us, to get attuned to him. Perhaps it requires rethinking who does all the talking when I pray. Is it just me telling God what I think the answers should be that he should give to me? Or am I listening? I'm now responsible for 20 uh, other team members in uh, the country where we live. We have two teams of missionaries, one in uh, the capital and one in our city, and I travel back and forth between the two. This role can sometimes be quite overwhelming for me, and I don't know what to do half the time. But I'm so encouraged by Moses. Because he didn't seem to have any great strategies for leadership other than routinely seeking God out and in solitude and silence, hearing what God had to instruct him to say and then going and carrying it out. It seems like for Moses, leadership was that simple. And I love this model and I don't believe it's too simplistic. I'm convinced that it's all I need and much, much more. This has reshaped my prayer life, so I often find myself going to God with a question. I'll write a question at the top of my journal, and I'm listening for his answer. Sometimes the answer comes through something I read, uh, through that still, small voice. Sometimes it comes right away. Sometimes it comes a few days later in a very unexpected way. Sometimes it doesn't come at all, and that's okay, because it's up to God how he chooses to answer me. 
It's up to me to make sure that I am orienting myself to turn aside and listen to his voice. Well, there's a point to all this listening prayer. It's not just for my edification. It's far greater than that. I hear God speak in the temple when I read Isaiah 6, and I hear the question he's saying. And he says, whom shall I send for us? Who will go? Isaiah realizes it's not just for his sake that he's overhearing the Trinity speak here. It's for the sake of others. And we're brought face to face with God's vision and heart here. It is God's vision for other people to know it, that the nations know him. We're exposed to his grace in order to share it. Freely you've received, freely give. We're invited, like Isaiah was, into a profound partnership with God. We're invited to become, to become God's spokespeople. When we hear the voice of God, we also have to hear him saying, who will go for us? Our response to that question needs to be, sir, if you'll entrust me with the message, I'd be glad to take it for you. Each one of us is asked to take his message for him. Some of us go overseas to other countries like Spain or uh, the Middle East. But all of us are asked to take God's message and share it. This is the way our God operates. That's his heart. It's his vision for the nations to know him. And amazingly, he invites us to partner with him. I would like to invite you today also to partner with what God is doing in the lives of Muslim men and women on the other side of the world in a place that particularly needs your prayers and we need your involvement You may say, oh, it's been 22 years since you've been there and you haven't seen a lot of fruit. Why should I stay committed? Why should I stay involved? It's because God has a vision for these people. It's God's vision that they know him. And with this people, uh, God has given us a verse, and it's articulated in Isaiah 60:22, and it talks about the people in the country where we live. The smallest family will become a thousand people. The tiniest group will become a mighty nation. At the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. And the Amplified Version says, I, the Lord, will hasten it at its appointed time. There is an appointed time for the place where we are living. There is Uh, a way for these people to come to know him there will be a movement the kingdom will be next door to everywhere and god is inviting us to stay believing and to stay involved and committed and to partner with him to see this happen isaiah again says this it's god's plan and he says in 48 16 from the beginning of time god says i've plainly told you what will happen 45.19, I publicly proclaim bold promises. I speak only what's true, and I declare only what is good. 45.23, I never go back on my word. 44.26, I carry out the predictions of my prophets. 46.10, everything I've said will come to pass. And verse 11, I've said what I would do, and I will do it. It is God's vision. He is going to bring a movement where we are. 
And we're invited to partner with him. What a privilege it is to be involved. And I'd like to invite you to join us in prayer, to join us in praying for these people, uh, to come to know him, to join us in saying to God, who will go for us? God, if you will entrust us, we will go. We will pray. We will believe your promises. We will believe that you do what you say you do. Let's pray. O Lord, truly you are the high and holy one who lives forever. Your train fills the temple. You're huge and awesome and to be feared and worshipped. How can we thank you enough for your heart of tenderness towards us, for your mercy? Thank you that it's your vision for us to know you. Thank you that we couldn't stand before you, but you made a way. You dealt with our sin powerfully and completely through Jesus. Thank you that you allow us to lean back into you and to realize that we are the children that you love. Thank you for the confidence and hope that come from your presence. You are our promised land. Be all that we long for. We pray Moses' words for ourselves, that we may know you, progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with you, that we would perceive, recognize, understand more strongly and clearly who you are. We pray that we'd have ears to hear your voice speaking to us through life's circumstances and challenges. Open our ears wide and help us to listen to you in your word and to believe what we hear. And then, Lord, help us to take your message to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My blessing for you this morning uh, is really coming out of what Clara Doherty shared. That you would... uh, have the truth that God speaks, that God spoken to Moses and his people, God spoke to Reuben and his family, and God spoke to Ken and Claire. And God is speaking to you. I don't know what your takeaway is for this morning, but we know, we're certain, I'm certain that God spoke to you this morning. And so I pray also that you would have faith to respond to that which he's spoken to you about this morning. Go in Jesus' name.